want to do a, like I said, something a little different. We don't want to be bound to a specific uh, order of service. I just want to be obedient to what the Lord shows us. When I uh, worked on this message, the Lord just kept showing me that, that that we need to just switch things up a little bit this morning. So what we're going to do, typically we'll do, uh, I've come to do a welcome and then we'll do a couple songs and then go to the message. And then sort of do like a one song invitation. But what I really felt led to do today was something a little different, is sort of do the message at the start. Then when I get done, we're going to do uh, three or four songs or whatever the Lord leads us to do. But really, the idea is that there's immediate application. Because we're talking today about worship. Talking today about freedom through worship. And uh, what better thing to do once we're done with that than to have an opportunity to respond. And an opportunity to be obedient and, and do what God has for us to do. Amen? Amen. So uh, I'm going to talk to you today about the, ba- the battle that rages is what I entitled this message. The battle that rages. I'm going to use about six chapters in Exodus. I'm going to jump all around. Uh, I'm going to look at a conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. And uh, but I'm going to sort of explain and give you context as we go along, so hopefully I don't lose anyone. Amen? Amen. So here at our church, we talk a lot about uh, spiritual warfare, and that is absolutely real. It's absolutely a reality, and it's something you need to be aware of. But I want to talk to you this morning about another battle. It's a battle really that started all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, and that is a battle for worship, and a battle specifically for our worship. Again, context-wise, we're jumping sort of in the middle with Exodus 7 here. We're jumping sort of in the middle of what some consider the greatest event in human history outside of the life of Christ, and that is the Exodus. If you're not familiar with the Exodus and all that happened there, basically God calls Moses to deliver his people, the Israelites, from, from slavery in Egypt. And the other main player in the story is Pharaoh, who is the king, Egyptian king, basically the Egyptian ruler to his people. He was a god. They viewed him as a god. And uh, Moses basically goes, as God tells him to, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Hey, let, let our people go. We want to leave here. We want to leave slavery in Egypt. We want to go back to the promised land that God is leading us to. Of course, you know the story. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't do that. And then God sends ten plagues into the, the Israelites to, uh, or, you know, through those things, through those events, he eventually sets them free. They flee. They go towards the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They cross on dry land and God swallows up the Egyptian army with the Red Sea. If you if you never uh, read the account of it, it's an awesome story, and I can encourage you to read it all the way through. Because I'm sort of jumping in the middle here uh, in Exodus chapter seven, but I just want to put it in context. Our first text this morning is Exodus seven sixteen, but I actually want to read verses fourteen through eighteen. So sixteen is the only one to be on the screen. But let me read you the other verses. Verse fourteen says, "Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened." Honestly, most sermons you hear on this passage talk about that phrase right there. And they tie it into election and Calvinism and all kinds of crazy things. But we're not going to do that this morning. He goes on. He says, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile, the Nile River, to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned to a serpent. And you shall say to him, you shall, he's telling that, uh, Moses, you shall say to him, this is verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go. Remember that phrase. Let my people go. That they may serve me. The word there literally is worship. That they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. They rose, what he says. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in my hand, and shall turn to blood. 
Verse 18 says, The fish in the Nile shall die, and the fish will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Amen? Amen. All right, so back to this passage. Exodus 7, 16, again. He says, And you shall say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my what? People. Let my people go that they may what? Serve or worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. First off, I want you to start by just seeing this battle for worship. Because, well, let me start with this. Let me start with the question. Why are you here? To worship and praise. Our, our church is real big on helping people, number one, know God. Number two, find freedom and be free from yesterday. Number three, we want them to discover their purpose so they know why God created them and where they can serve. And then number four, we want to give them a place to serve. That's what we're all about as a church. It's receiving people as they are. You know, it doesn't matter what they look like or smell like or how they're dressed or what vocabulary they have. We receive everyone. Yes. Because that's what God calls us to do. Yeah. To love and to share the love of Christ. So that's what we do. And we're real big on helping people uh, determine that purpose and know that purpose so they can walk in that and do what God's called you to do. Because ultimately, the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction in your life will be in doing what God created you to do. That's where you find that, that feeling that you're looking for. That's where you find satisfaction and peace and comfort and, and fulfillment. It's in doing what God calls you and designed you to do. The, the phrase we use in our Growth Tracks uh, series is design determines destiny. So the idea is that if we look at how God designed you as far as your gifts and talents and all those different things, we can then determine what, what you are to do. Because God's not going to give you a gift to be a you know a teacher and then call you to be a farmer. right? God doesn't do that. God does things in order and in things that make sense, and He's going to gift you in accordance with what His purpose for your life. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 139, 13, talks about us being knit in our mother's womb. Mm-hmm. The word there, that word knit, literally means like to knit. And the picture is that God, when you were in your mother's womb, God knit in you the exact gifts and talents and skills and everything that you need to do what God has called you to do. Amen? Amen. So He... he Knit together the exact mixture of person. So I'm, I'm assuming everybody here agrees with that. I hope you do. But let's, I'm going to go sort of big picture for a second. Not necessarily why you're here as an individual, but why are we here as humans? Why did God create us? To glorify Him. To glorify Him. Mm-hmm. Our, redeem, our uh, Reformed brothers and sisters use something called catechisms. Steel. The catechisms were developed in sort of the Middle Ages when people, a lot of people couldn't read and write, and they were basically developed to teach truth. And so a catechism is basically a dialogue. It is a question and an answer. So they taught truth and they taught doctrine and all those things by people memorizing these catechisms or these conversations. The most, uh, I guess, the most famous one really is called the Westminster Catechism. There's a long version. There's a short version. The uh, Westminster Catechism, I think, was officially put together in like. Mid-1600s. 1646, I believe it was. Again, it's a tool for teaching. is all it is. In some some churches, some denominations, they still use those things. But the first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why are you here? What is the chief purpose that you exist? And the answer to that question is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And to that I say, Amen. There's a lot of things that my Reformed brothers and sisters believe that I wouldn't amen, but I can't amen that. <laughs> because that is our purpose, that is why we're here, is to glorify Him and enjoy Him 
forever. But what I want you to grasp this morning, talking about the battle for worship, is this to understand that ever since the garden, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan has been trying to rob the worship from God that he has rightly due. Amen? As a matter of fact, it's that very thing that got him kicked out of heaven. You can read in Isaiah about Satan getting kicked out of heaven. How he, you know, he used to be an angel. He was a beautiful angel. And because of his prideful, arrogant attitude, because he wanted to be worshipped like, like God and take God's place, basically, he got kicked out. That's what happened. You can read all about it. It's in the Bible. Satan desired to steal the worship and the glory and the praise that belonged to God and redirect it to himself. It was all about him. In a few minutes, I want to talk about some of the specific ways that he does that. But for now, I just want you to agree with me that there is a battle for worship. Yes. That the enemy, ever since the garden, he is today, and as long as we are on this earth, he will always be trying to steal worship and trying to redirect it to something that doesn't matter and something that it shouldn't be directed toward. Can I show you why there's a battle for worship? Can I, can I tell you why? It's very important. Listen, there, there, there is a battle for worship not because God is an ego maniac. You see, He don't need you to worship Him. It's not an ego thing. It's not a pride thing. Then why do we worship? Why does He want us to worship? Let me give you three reasons that He wants us to worship. The first one is transformation. Transformation. You see, He knows that transformation happens in His presence. He knows that when we submit ourselves and we humble ourselves and we worship Him as He is, then amazing things happen in our life. He knows that when His presence, again, God's everywhere at all times, but there's also a manifest presence where He descends on a place. And listen, when He does that, things happen. People are transformed. Things change. And I say it all the time, but God can do it an instant in in that setting what I can't do in a lifetime. He can change in an instant what I can't do through my efforts and my trying and my striving for the rest of my days. He wants us to be transformed. That's why there's a battle against worship because the enemy don't want you to be transformed. The second reason he wants us to worship is likeness. Likeness. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. You see, the reason the enemy battles worship and don't want you worshiping is because he knows that in that, again, in worship and in the context of worship, you are being conformed to the image of his son. That's what he says. The Bible says that's what his his goal and desire for all of us is, is that we are conformed to the image of Jesus. And that today I look more like Jesus than yesterday, and by God's grace tomorrow I look more like him than I did today. But it's in worship that that happens. I'm transforming to his likeness. The third reason he desires our worship is freedom. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. But man, he sets us free of situations. He sets us free of circumstances and addictions and all these things. How does he do that? Just by being in the room. <laughs> because listen, you, you, again, he can do it in an instant what I can't do in a lifetime. And when I come into contact with him, when I encounter him for who he is, and I humble myself and get down where I need to be, some amazing things happen. And, and, and freedom happens and we are set free and we are changed. So listen, let me just say this. If, if you, if you uh, come into contact with Jesus and you had an encounter with Jesus or an experience with Jesus, however you want to word it, and you walked away from that unchanged, then you need to check yourself. Because you can't come into contact with Jesus. You can't come into contact with the God of all creation and walk away unchanged. 
That's one of the reasons that we worship. Transformation, likeness, and freedom. <clears throat> but I share this because, again, it is a battle. And you, you've got to grasp, and you've got to grasp in your mind that the last thing the enemy wants to see you doing this morning is worshiping. And he'll do whatever he can to fight. Number two, freedom through worship. Verse 17 that we read says, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the waters that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. Back in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't stop worshiping. They just started worshiping the wrong things. So they never stopped. The enemy just misdirected their worship and redirected it into the wrong things. And he still works the same way. He wants to misdirect our worship into the wrong things. Into the wrong wrong things. You know, what comes to my mind is just the idols. So I, so I simply ask you, what, what idols are you misdirecting your worship towards? Well, what idols are in your life? Because the reality is anything that competes with God's place in my life, His rightful place in my life, it's an idol. And those can even be good things, right? I mean, I've met people who their spouse is an idol. I've met people who their kids are an idol. I've met people who their, their careers or you know, finances or degrees or positions. There's all kinds of things that can be. And anytime I elevate, let anything come to the position of preeminence in my life in the number one spot that belongs to God, then that thing is becoming an idol. Right. So, so what idol is in your life? You see, this is clearly illustrated in this whole dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh because Pharaoh understood that for the Israelites to worship their God was a threat to his kingdom. He realized what was going to happen. If the God of the Israelites could do all that they said and would do all that they said. But understand the real issue here is control. It was about Pharaoh controlling the Israelites, keeping them in bondage, keeping them in slavery. And just keeping them where he wanted them. And honestly, you see church leaders today who are doing the same thing. You see church leaders today who want to control everything by keeping people in bondage through religion. You see church leaders who want to control by keeping people in bondage to to tradition and to legalism. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with tradition. Tradition's a good thing. But when I start basing my life and my decisions... And let, letting tradition become an idol, then I've got it in the wrong place. Yeah, that's right. Same thing with religion. When, when I make it all about coming here on Sundays or going wherever on whatever day and going through the motions and just going through the motions and just making it all about the service and the motions of religion, then I've made it an idol. Because right. it's not about religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some people, it's legalism. I mean, that's where I grew up, I'll be honest with you. It was all about rules and regulations. Looking like this, talking like this. If you didn't have this version of the Bible, listen to this uh, in this type of Christian music and do this, this, and this, then God will answer your prayer. I mean, that was really the mentality. Mm-hmm. But that's so wrong. Right. So wrong. But listen, it's about control. But the, here's the cool thing. And we see it almost weekly in, in this church is people who come up in that setting, who come up in that religious setting or that traditional setting, again, not knocking tradition, but uh, come up in that whole legalistic mindset and they, and they come in here and they worship and what happens? In an instant. In an instant, God wipes away decades of that stuff. 
decades of religion, decades of conditioning, decades of religious control. And he does it through what? Through worship. He does it through worship and he does it through conversation with other Christians. But listen, this this little dialogue with Moses and Pharaoh over and over again shows us what the Father really wants. What's he say over and over? If if you're familiar with this passage, he says, let my people go. He tells him that over and over and over. He tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? Because that's his heart. So clearly, clearly, God wants us to walk in freedom. Clearly, he doesn't want you to walk out of here today 80% free or 90% free or 20% free. He wants you to walk out of here 100% free. That's why Jesus went to the cross for you. Right? That's his heart. That's his desire. Total freedom is always his agenda. That's why I put in my notes. Three things. Total freedom is always his agenda. Not partial freedom. Not 10%. Total freedom. It's always his agenda. Number two, his love is always working to make us free. His love is always moving that direction. And number three is his anger is always directed at those things that interfere with love. So number one, he always wants us free. Number two, his love is always moving that direction. And number three, anything that stands in the way, he doesn't like. He gets angry at it. So again, talking about freedom through worship. So let me share with you some tactics that the enemy uses to hinder our worship. Again, I'm going back into Exodus and we're going to look at this dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh. We just sort of set the stage up to this point. Oh my Lord, I thought he was about done. <laughs> Not quite. I want to look at these tactics because they're very clear. And we're going to jump into this dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh. And I want you to see what happens here. Because really, what happens is Pharaoh is trying to get Moses to compromise. And there's four times they have this conversation. Moses never wavers from what God's told him. But Pharaoh said, hey Moses, have you thought about this? Well, how about this Moses? How about this Moses? He tries to give a compromise. So to start with, let me, let me read you this. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. And I'm going to share this because this is what God told Moses. And I want you to see, here's the standard, okay? He says, go and gather the elders of Israel together. And say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what you have been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the otherites, a land flowing milk and honey. He says, notice, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, that would be Pharaoh, and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now... Please, notice what he says here. Please let us go three days' journey until the wilderness that we may sacrifice, worship, serve, same word, to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So he tells Moses, hey Moses, you're going to talk to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And he's not going to let them go. But I'm going to deal with him and I'm going to send these plagues. And you're going to go. Not only are you going to go, but you're going to go blessed because you're going to plunder the Egyptians. You with me? That's what he tells him. 
The Bible says, "Say Amen." All right. Next, the first tactic he uses to hinder in this whole dialogue is partial surrender. Exodus eight chapter twenty-five. Again, this is that that dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh. This is after the fourth plague has come on Egypt, which was, which was flies. And he says, uh, then Pharaoh, this is after the plague, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God in the land. Did you catch the compromise? What did he tell him? God told Mo- Moses to tell Pharaoh, hey, we're going to go three days journey into the wilderness. And we're going to sacrifice to God. Pharaoh says, hey, how about this sacrificing right here? You see, three days journey into the wilderness. Honestly, you're talking about, by most estimates, two and a half to three million people at this time. To move two and a half to three million people, three days journey into the wilderness, is going to cost them. You right? You with me? There's no cost for them to worship in the land. But to be obedient to God, it was going to cost them something. What I want you to see here is the enemy doesn't mind worship that costs you nothing. The enemy doesn't mind worship that doesn't require you to change. You with me, amen? Let me just make this point as I make it. The enemy doesn't care if you come here every Sunday morning and never miss a Sunday for the next 50 years if all you do is go through some motions. Because that doesn't cost you anything. He doesn't care if you come here every Sunday for the next 50 years and you just play religious games. He doesn't care if you come here every Sunday for the next 50 years if all you ever do is listen to the Word and never become a doer of the Word. He doesn't care if you come here every Sunday for the next 50 years if all you ever surrender is areas of your life. Partial surrender. That's what the enemy wants. You see, God wants you to take it all and let him have it all. What he, what the enemy hates is complete and total surrender of yourself and all that you are to God. What the enemy hates is when you take whatever God's been telling you to give up and you hold on to it. So what area do you need to surrender? What will it take for you to do it? Partial surrender. That's the first tactic the enemy uses to hinder our worship. And honestly, this, this is applicable to our lives in general, not just worship. But we do the same thing throughout our lives. In every area of our life, we, we hinder our walk with the Lord. We hinder our path to freedom because we won't let go of stuff He's told us to let go of. Amen. Number two, half-heartedness. Same conversation after the fourth plague. Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. And then he says, intercede for me. The issue here is still control. He wanted them to go, but he didn't want them to go and do it the way God had told them to go and do it. You see, there's a lot of Christians who, who know it's right to worship God, but they hold on to something he's told them to let go. And the enemy convinces them that full surrender is just too extreme. You see, matter of fact, when I was just going through the first section with partial surrender, the enemy was telling me some of that right then. Yeah. Hey, you ain't got to let that go. Just, just let go a little bit of it, right? Or just, just, just do a little bit. You know, just do what you got to, to to get by, or just do what you got to do to blend in. 
He was whispering in your ear. God doesn't want half your heart. He wants it all. Listen, the clearest illustration of this whole idea in Scripture is in Mark chapter 14. Let me share this with you. Mark 14, verses 3 through 7. This is the woman who anointed Jesus for his burial. It says, and while he, that, that he is Jesus, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Notice this phrase, there was, or this verse, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this one wasted like that? But this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So that's 300 days' wages. So basically this ointment is worth a year's salary. More than a year's salary. And they, it says, uh, so why was this not sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor? And they scolded her. Notice that. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Here's what jumped out at me. Everyone in the room, everyone in the room thought what she had done was excessive, they thought it was wasteful, and they thought it was extreme. It's a waste. Way too much. You should have just put it in. You shouldn't have let that go. You shouldn't have sacrificed that. You shouldn't surrender that. But Jesus honors her. Everyone else in the room is against her. They're indignant because she was excessive and wasteful and extreme. But Jesus honors her and states that this act of extravagant worship, which is really what that is, is extravagant worship. And this action that she did would be told everywhere his story was told. So what everyone else thought was excessive and extreme, God considered reasonable. Yes. Yes. Amen. Why does that matter? Because it is extreme wholehearted worship that brings transformation. Yes. It's extreme wholehearted worship that, that changes circumstances and changes our likeness and, and sets us free. So I simply ask you, what would extravagant worship look like for you today? What's God calling you to do? The third tactic is disunity. Exodus chapter 10, verse 11. We're skipping forward a little bit. This is back in that dialogue. This is after the eighth plague, which was locusts. Moses and Pharaoh had the same exact conversation on Moses. He goes and says, let my people go. And he tells him this. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord. For that is what you desire. They were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So what's going on here? It's divine and conquer. See, what he's saying is, hey, the men can go worship. The men can go do what you want, Mary, Moses. But everybody else stay here. You see, it's a, it's a divine and conquer. I believe it's very clear from this passage and many others in the Bible, man, that the enemy fears families who are worshiping together and who are united in purpose. That's his greatest fear. Our families who are united and in Christ and working and serving together. That's why the enemy's working overtime to destroy families. Both blood families and kingdom families. Like this. Why does he do that? Because there is exponential power and blessing released when generations, generations serve together and worship together. He has no answer for that. 
Not only that, but there's exponential power and blessings released from kingdom families, bodies, churches. Mm-hmm. Kingdom families are united together. Amen. It goes all the way back to the garden. What, what did he do in the garden? He made male and female to become what? One. Why? So they can produce a godly offspring. It's always been you. That's always been the plan. That's why the enemy works and works and works to destroy families and to destroy all these things. He knows that tactic very well. The whole tactic of disunity. Divide and conquer. Honestly, when, when I think about this, my mind goes to those nature shows. You know, you see those nature shows like out on the uh, Serengeti Plain in Africa. And you see these, these uh, tribes of lions chasing like zebras, herds of zebra. Mm-hmm. Or any animal. You pick the animal. They chase them across those plains. Which one do they go after? They don't go to the front and take out the leader. right? They don't even go into the middle of the herd and take that one in the middle. Which one do they get? They get the one in the back. That's slow. That's weak. And they pull him off to the side and they get him off by himself. He's done. The enemy works the same way. That's why he don't want you to come to church. That's why he wants you to sit on your couch on Sunday morning. That's why he doesn't want you to fellowship or come here and get encouraged to do anything that that the Lord would have you do because He wants to get you off to the side. Mm-hmm. Man, He's a master at divide and conquer. He's doing it in families. He's doing it in churches. He's doing it all across our culture. Just turn on the news. Yeah. Divide and conquer. The family has always been a target, now more than ever. It's amazing to me that we live in the most connected generation ever, but we're not really connected. Not really connected. So the enemy slips in with discouragement or loneliness or depression. and He wants you to overhear all by yourself, separated. He wants you to think that you're all alone. He wants you to think that nobody knows what you're going through and nobody can relate to it. And he gets you over here all divided and distracted and confused. And before you know it, you just feel all condemned and won't quit. That's where he wants you. So let me just say this. If that's where you are this morning, that's not where the Father wants you. Right. He wants you home. He wants you back in the family. Yes. And this is the place for that. And I can tell you, listen, the, the one thing Lord, the Lord keeps showing me over and over and over is the more we counsel people, the more I talk to people, is, man, you're not alone. Right. I guarantee you, there's not anybody here who can stand up and say, hey, I'm dealing with this. And I guarantee you, there would be another one in this church that's dealt with the same thing. You see, the enemy wants you to think that you're all alone. He wants you to think that no one can relate because he wants you to give up. Because he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his agenda. But the Bible says the Son, Jesus, came that we may have life and have it abundantly. That's his desire. That's his heart. So if you're, if the enemy's got you divided and distracted and way out in left field somewhere all by yourself, just know that that's not where you need to be. Know that that's not where the Lord wants you to be. And that's not where this church wants you to be. And all you got to do to get back where you need to be is just make, take a step. Yeah. Yeah. Just take a step out of the darkness into the light and just come home to the Father. Amen. The last tactic is fear-based thinking. Exodus 10, verse 24. This is Pharaoh's, or Pharaoh's excuse me, final attempt to get Moses to compromise. So Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. 
So again, in context, let me just tell you where we're on the story. This is after the ninth plague, which was darkness over all of Egypt for three days. Right before the tenth plague, which is what? Death of the firstborn. We call it the Passover. What I want you to see here is that the ultimate goal for all of us as Christians is to get to the place where we're worshiping God, number one, with all of ourselves. It goes back to that surrender thing. We're not holding anything back. We're, we're fully in. We're not half-hearted in this thing. We're all the way in. Number one, we're doing it with all of ourselves. Number two, that we're united with family. That can be blood family, or that can be kingdom family, as far as the church body. But we're united with family. And number three, is that we do it with all of our resources. So we are all His, we're doing it with others in family. And number three, we're doing it with all our resources. Bill Johnson put it this way, he says, a Christianity that costs little is worth little. A Christianity that costs little is worth little. So here, here's the easiest way I can explain this. The Father's heart is that I take everything that I have and I use it for His glory. It's very easy when you realize that it's all His anyway. Yeah. The house that I live in, it's His. The cars I have are His. All the money in my bank account is his. My clothes, everything is his. He just calls us to be stewards of those things and to use those things for his glory and to further his kingdom. Yes, that, see, that's what's going on here. Moses is trying to get, or Pharaoh is trying to get Moses to sort of leave his stuff behind. To leave all his resources and then go. And it, so the natural thing that happens is what? Fear. You start worrying about bills. You start worrying about all the things that are coming. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Because, listen, the enemy knows that he, if he can keep us attached to that fear-based economy, he can affect our decisions. Mm-hmm. If he can keep us attached to the fear-based economy, he can influence our emotions. He can, he can really pull us in our thinking. Because the root issue in that fear-based economy is what? Distrust. Yeah. He says, hey, you can't trust God. You can't trust God to provide for that. You can't trust God to do that. You can't trust God to restore this or fix this or set you free from this or deal with this. You can't trust Him. And that's what He was doing in the garden. It hasn't changed. Fear-based thinking. That's where He wants us to live. And if that's where we live, we become ineffective in reaching the community all around us. You see, He wants us operating in a faith-based economy. Trusting Him with everything. Trusting everything to Him. Our families, our resources, our very lives. So here's my question. Are you willing to give God all that you have so you can receive all that He has for you? Think about that question. Are you willing to give God all that you have, which, if you really think about it, is not a whole lot in the context of eternity. Am I willing to give God what I have so I can receive all that He has for me? Lastly, real quick, I want you to see this. A picture of deliverance. Because it's sort of the end of the story. Exodus 12, verses 29-32 says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, his firstborn son, who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, 
And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, get out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, there goes that fear of sleeping, and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. It's pretty cool how Pharaoh was all about compromising. He was all about bargaining. But when he saw the true power of God manifested, he was done. And all those Israelites were spared by what? By faith. By faith in what Moses told them. By faith in God's plan to deliver them. The same way that we are. If they hadn't obeyed by faith, guess what? The death angel would have visited their house and went. But when Pharaoh saw that power, he was done. The Israelites lived by faith, and God honored their faith. And as a result, they were delivered from bondage. They were set free. And that's the Father's desire. That, that, that's it. So we walk by faith, not by sight. That's the question. Trusting Him for your provisions and reward. I'm going to see musicians so they will make their way back up. Good. Next slide, Isaac. So I got just a couple questions I want to ask you, just in closing, just to sort of apply what we talked about. The first one: What has He been calling you to surrender? What has He been calling you to surrender? What was it the enemy was whispering? Hey, you don't have to do that. Can I, can I just tell you that men are the worst for this? I'm being serious. Women, women are like one being, but men, man, we can compartmentalize things and break it all up, and we can have a work life, a home life, we can separate it all. And I think we're the worst for this. And just being real and transparent, I was that. I live there. I know how it works. But he, he don't want you to just surrender one compartment or one drawer in the dresser. He wants it all. He didn't call me to be truthful. He didn't call me to be truthful at home and then lie all the rest of the time. He didn't call me to be, you know, one thing at work and another thing at home. That's hypocrisy. He calls me to be real all the time. And to surrender everything. So I mean I know, I mean I know, as good as I'm standing here, that when we went over that, they, God was telling people things, hey, this is what you need to lay down today. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's an attitude. Man, I don't know. But I know that God is able to deliver you from it. And His heart is that you are free from it. So what is it He's been asking you to surrender? Will you let go this morning? Number two. Does He have all your heart and affection? Or is there something in your life that's competing with you? You don't take competitors. Like I said, man, sometimes it's our spouse. And it's good thing. But we elevate our spouse or our parents or you know whatever in our life up to a position that we don't need to be. So does he have all your heart and affection? Or is there something competing with him? Next, do you feel alone and isolated? Do you feel you've done something too bad to return to you? And there's a lot of people that live like that. But I want you to know it doesn't matter what you've done. There is no sin too great that he can't deal with. 
listen, the thing that goes along with that a lot of times is this attitude that I've got to get it all fixed and then I can come. Guess what? It don't work that way. This is the place that you're welcome regardless. Our, 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 our deal is come as you are. But don't stay as you are because God wants to work with you. Number four. Reacting in fear or responding in faith. Which are you doing? You see, what you see on the news right now is a reaction of fear. But God calls us to respond in faith. Are you willing to give all that you have to Him to receive all that He has for you? And that's like a, the greatest exchange ever. For me to lay down all that I have, which... Again, in the context of eternity, is nothing to receive all of us. 